All right, 1 Kings chapter 10. The whole theme of 1 Kings is covenants and character. We're looking both at the covenant that God made with David, made with Israel, and made with various kings, and his character, but we're also looking at the agreements that men made with God and their character. And obviously with the Lord, it's always good, but with the, the men, it's, it's sometimes good, sometimes not good. And we are now entering into a phase where it's beginning to get not good for Solomon. We hearken back to the beautiful prayer, probably the height of Solomon's spirituality, his walk with the Lord, when he, from the Bible at least, when he, he prays and he cries out to God after the temple's constructed. And one of those prayers was that non-Israelis would hear about what God was doing in Israel and they would come to worship the Lord at the temple, to pray to him. And in this chapter, we will see that God answered that prayer. We're going to see the Queen of Sheba come and visit. And yet, when we see the timing of this, when she comes, we know that Solomon has already begun to take those first sliding steps backwards. So what chapter 10 poses for us, because when we get to chapter 11, things just are bad. What chapter 10 poses for us or posits for us is some important lessons in backsliding. God uses you and me because he wants to bless others even when I'm not moving forward in my relationship with him. Therefore, as we're going to see, being used by God doesn't mean Solomon's okay and that God's okay with his compromises. So chapter 10, we begin in verse 1. It says, And when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. And she came to Jerusalem with a very great train with camels that bear spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. And Solomon told her all her questions. There was not anything that uh, hid from the king, which he did not tell her. So verse 1 here, we meet this individual, the queen of Sheba. The Sabaean kingdom of Sheba existed in the southernmost part of the Arabian Peninsula. We would call it modern-day Yemen. They were the richest nation among the Arabians due to their commerce. And so it mentions here when this rich sovereign hears of the fame of Solomon, and it says concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. Why did she hear of Solomon? It was because of the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that because Solomon was spreading the name of the Lord, but literally that Solomon's fame was due to the Lord's blessing on his life. Because of all the blessings she was hearing about, all the the wealth, all the prosperity, all the wisdom, she was hearing about this guy Solomon, and so his fame, because of how God had blessed him, reached her ears in that faraway land. Fame can be a dangerous thing, even when it's the Lord who's giving it to you. It can be a dangerous thing, because I can begin to think I'm doing all the right things rather than giving the glory to God. It's very easy to slip into that change of mentality. And that brings us to our first tip tonight to avoid backsliding, which is never assume prosperity or fame is because God is happy with you. We can never make the connection or the correlation that, well, things are going great. I'm prospering in my work or I'm prospering in in our finances or I'm prospering in the things I set out to do. We can never automatically presume or assume that that means God is happy with me. The only way that we can be sure that the Lord is pleased with our lives is by looking to the Scriptures to determine if what I'm actually doing pleases the Lord. Now, 
She hears about this, and then she comes, it says, to prove him with hard questions. The word prove here means to examine something to learn its true nature. She heard it, but as we'll see in a little bit, she didn't believe it. So she came, and she wanted to prove what she heard. And the process whereby she wanted to prove that was through, it says here, hard questions, which the word here means riddles, or the asking of hard questions as a game. So this is like Gollum and Bilbo, you know, going at it. No, I'm kidding. So some of you are like, who are you talking about? Don't worry, we'll skip it, pretend it didn't happen. The Arabians were famous for their wordplay and riddles, and they considered themselves superior to other people groups, other ethnicities in this area. In fact, they often used their riddles to scorn those who couldn't solve them. I don't think she came up to scorn Solomon, but verse 2 tells us that at least her cover coming up was that she was interested in a trade deal. Because verse 2 says, she came to Jerusalem with a very great train. The word here means a large merchant or caravan group. It possibly meant other dignitaries from Sheba, but her purpose here is she's here for trade. She's here for commerce. And it tells us what she brought. She came bearing spices, very much gold, and precious stones. So with uh, expensive perfumes, rare gemstones, valuable gemstones, and very much gold. Sheba had resources that Israel did not. These were likely samples of how a trade agreement could benefit Israel. But as we mentioned earlier, her primary reason is much more personal. For it says when she arrived, she didn't get down to business. She communed with Solomon of all that was in her heart. And it tells us that Solomon told or answered her all her questions. There's not a single thing hid from the king. Any of the riddles she posed, any of the hard sayings that she posed, he was able to figure them out. He was able to answer every single one of them. There wasn't a single one that stumped him. And So that, of course, impresses her, but that was not the only thing that impressed the queen. Look at verse 4. Solomon's wealth impresses her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom and the house that he had built and the food of his table and the sitting of his servants and the attendance of his ministers and their apparel and his cupbearers and his ascent by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. So, It mentions here when she saw the house he had built, that's probably referring to his palace, not the temple, because later it calls it the house of the Lord. So when she saw his palace, how majestic it was, when she saw the food at his table, remember we discussed in 1 Kings 5 that it was incredibly luxurious, the food at his table. When she saw the sitting of his servants, literally it means the special seats for Solomon's cabinet members. These were also apparently quite luxurious. When she saw that, and then the attendance of his ministers, all the the functions, the offices that were there at his table, and his cupbearers, and his ascent by which he went up to the house of the Lord. Remember Solomon, we read last week that he built this veranda that gave him special access between his palace and the temple. Um, When she saw all of this, it says there was no more spirit in her. You see, the queen, when she would see all these things, she would know Solomon wasn't faking how prosperous Israel was. A king who lived in this kind of luxury was normal. That wasn't the thing that caught her attention. Most kings lived that way, even if their people starved. But a kingdom that needed this many officials and treated those officials with this much luxury had wealth to go around. And so it took her breath away. That's what it means she had no more spirit in her. It took her breath away. It's a euphemism for being amazed or shocked. Now, why would she be amazed or shocked? Well, remember, Israel's just this tiny tract of land in the Middle East. It always fascinates me that it's like the center of attention for all these world problems. 
It's like this little tiny piece of ground. It didn't have a history of wealth. It didn't have a history of power. I remember one of the first things our tour guide said, my first trip to Israel, he goes, uh, we are a place of abundance of rocks. Take as many as you like. And I thought it was silly, but then you start driving on the bus and everywhere you look, it literally looks like some kid took a big, huge dump pail of, of rocks and just dropped it all over the nation. There's just rocks everywhere because of all the uh, earthquake activity that, that has gone on there over the centuries. So it didn't have a history of wealth or power. The people of Israel, their history is they're a ragtag group of slaves that acquired their land through God's miraculous hand, not because of how great or how large of a nation they were. The queen did not expect anything close to this much prosperity because she didn't believe the rumors of what God had done for Solomon and for Israel. And so in verse 6, when she's just astounded, she finally just fesses up. She said to the king, It was a true report that I heard in my own land of your acts and of your wisdom. Howbeit, I did not believe the words until I came, and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity exceeds the fame which I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are these your servants which stand continually before you, and that hear your wisdom. It was a true report. I heard in my own land of your acts, in other words, your affairs, all the wealth and of your wisdom. When she says, happy are your servants, happy are they to hear your wisdom, it means, man, they're in a good spot. It means to experience a favorable set of circumstances. Like, people sometimes ask the question, what's the difference between happiness and joy? Well, happiness, the word happy comes from the word happenstance, which has more of an association with luck. So, happenstance or happiness is associated with good circumstances. Like, if you, you're happy if you had power, you had joy even if you didn't have power, right? That's the truth of it. That's the difference. And when our power flickered a couple times, it was like, uh-oh, yeah, here we go. But it stayed on, and we're like, yay. But you can have joy no matter what your circumstances are. So the idea here is, you know, she's not, this is not a spiritual thing she's saying. You know, we, we use sometimes, we say the word blessed means, oh, how happy, and it does. That's not what she's saying here. She's just saying, man, you guys have it good. The people that serve you have it good. Which brings us to our second tip to avoid backsliding. Never assume that your good circumstances or even others' happiness around you is because God is happy with you. Just because things are going great, just because the circumstances are good and other people are happy doesn't mean things are good. Your wife and kids might be happy, but that doesn't mean that you're walking with the Lord. Sometimes, you know, that's because you're not leading them and, and the enemy's getting to all of them, not just you. Sometimes things are, are, are going great because the enemy goes, well, he's fine. He's trusting in all the circumstances. I'll just leave it alone. You say, well, why would, why would I experience blessing, though, when, if I'm not pleasing the Lord? Well, if you're good at something or if God's given you a gift, he doesn't take it back when things aren't going good. In Romans 11, verse 29, it's that famous verse that the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. Now, the context that's being used there is the nation of Israel. Paul begins the discussion in chapter 9 by going, so how does this salvation by grace through faith alone work with the fact that Israel is mostly an unbelief? And he asks the question, did God fail? And Paul's answer is no. And then he goes over the next three chapters and explains why God didn't fail. It was Israel who walked away. God did not fail. And then in in chapter 11, as he's coming to the end, he goes, and 
God's not done with them yet. They're still his people. Yes, they're in unbelief. Yes, they rejected their Messiah. Yes, most of them as individuals are not receiving the Messiah. But God's not done with them. For the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. Now, contextually then, Israel or the Jewish people at that time are the primary persecutors of the church, of Christians, those who are following Christ. They're persecuting their own people who have followed Christ. They're not in a good place. And yet the Lord says, they're still my people, and I've still given them gifts. I still have a calling upon their life. So when we look at our own lives, if God gives you a gifting or a calling, He enables you to be good at something. He doesn't just strip that away. I think Samson's life, and we'll we'll reference him again later tonight, but I think Samson's life is very interesting because (laughs) there are so many moments where you're like, God, why did you do that through him? Like his heart's not even in the right spot right now. Like there are numerous times where God does these mighty acts through Samson, and he's as carnal as carnal can be, right? And that's, but that's the point. The Lord raised him up to be that judge. One of the most interesting comments in the New Testament one that's so often misunderstood is in Romans chapter 9, where Paul, when referencing Pharaoh, and he says, for this very cause, I raised you up. And people read that, and they're like, yeah, God created Pharaoh basically to destroy him. No, he did not. That is not. Go look at the context of what Paul's quoting from. Paul's quoting from the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, where he quotes from, before he says that, he explains to Pharaoh, he goes, listen, he goes, this is the cause I raised you up, to exalt to exalt my name, to, so by you letting my people go. I had a plan for your life, Pharaoh. I raised you up to be the one to give the word to let my people go. But you resisted me every way. You chose this alternative plan that is nothing what I wanted you to do, and now I've got to deal with you because either way, I'm going to get glory. God didn't strip him of his power. God didn't not make him fair anymore because he was fighting the whole time. God just decided he was going to continue to do what he needed to do. And unfortunately, because Pharaoh kept fighting the Lord, it cost him everything. But the whole time that he didn't drop him off the throne, God kept trying to work with him. And there were probably times that Pharaoh's thinking, because he starts off. Remember, how does Pharaoh start the whole thing off? Moses comes to him and he goes, the Lord says, let my people go. And Pharaoh's response is as arrogant as it can be. He goes, who's the Lord and why should I listen to him? What part does he play in the pantheon? I haven't heard of this guy. Does he work with Ra or Ammon or or one of these other of our deities? What's he in charge of? Why should I listen to him? The whole time as as magicians are duplicating things, he's comforting himself with this idea of, life's good, I'm fine. God doesn't take back his gifts because we're not pleasing him. Therefore, blessed circumstances due to the gifts I have are not a good evaluator of whether or not God is pleased with me. I need to measure my thoughts and my behavior against God's Word to know if what I'm doing pleases Him, not my good circumstances. Well, verse 9, not only does she just say she's blown away, but then in verse 9, she commends the Lord for making Solomon king. She says, blessed be the Lord your God, this is a different word than happy, which delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel. Because the Lord loved Israel forever, therefore He made you the king to do judgment and justice. The word here, blessed, it means to commend or to speak words of excellence about something, to praise. Praise be to the Lord your God. Now, this does seem to indicate here that she's not a believer at this point because she says, praise be to the Lord your God, not my God, not our God. I don't think she stayed an unbeliever, though. 
And, and the reason is because of something Jesus said in Luke chapter 11. I can't prove it, but Jesus said in Luke eleven thirty one. He said, the queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the utmost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, a greater than Solomon is here. But then it goes in verse 32 and it says, the men of Nineveh shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. So the parallel there is kind of interesting in my mind in the sense that he's got one group that was a non-Israeli group, Gentile group, that turned to the Lord, and then through the teaching of someone else, and then she's in that same conversation. So again, I'm not going to like duke, you, duke it out with you over it if you disagree with me, but I don't think she stayed in unbelief. But at this point, at least, she's not a believer. But she says here, the Lord, your God, he should be commended because he delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel. The phrase delighted in it means what pleases God or what God takes pleasure in. I find it very interesting that an unbeliever can recognize a simple but so important truth. God created us, but he also delights in who he creates. Do you believe that? That God delights in you? Like he just loves you. Like he wants to bless you. It pleases him to work in our lives. Do you realize that? And you're not the exception to that rule. You're like, well, I, I get that for you, Pastor Will. Like, he loves you. No, he loves you. He, he delights in you. I'm in the role I'm in because he has to keep me on a short leash. Like, it's always funny when I hear him mention about, like, the inner circle of the disciples, Peter, James, and John. They're in the inner circle. I'm like, yeah, I know what the inner circle looks like, okay? It's the kid I tell, hey, you guys can go do this. You sit with me. I, that's the inner circle, right? That's how Jesus is with the disciples. He's like, all right, all right, I'm going to go pray Jairus' daughter. She's, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. I'm going to bring her back. You know, he's like, you guys stay out here. Or I'm going to go in and heal her. I'll be back in a second. Oh, you three with me. Because he knows what's going to happen if he lets them out of his sight. He delighted in them too. If he can delight in them, he, I mean, you think of all the special moments he had with Peter. And Peter's, he's a genuine guy, but he's, he's very prideful. He's someone who had to be broken multiple times. And the Lord had so many close, intimate conversations with him. I know if Peter was one of my employees, I probably would have been irritated with him a lot. But Jesus never seems that way. I mean, yes, he called him Satan once, but that's, that's okay. <laughs> I do that to Tom sometimes. So. <laughs> But those intimate conversations that they had together, they revealed the Lord delighted in him. One of the most precious moments in Scripture, you know, is when Peter's professing, I'll never, these guys might forsake you, but not me. Jesus, so gently, he says to him, Peter, I'll tell you the truth, he said, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. Satan, he wants to sift you like wheat. But I pray for you that your faith won't fail. When Jesus rises from the dead, no coincidence that Mark points out that Jesus said, go tell my disciples and Peter. Specifically names him. I love that guy. Make sure he knows. He needs to know I'm not dead. He needs to know this isn't the end of his story. I delight in him. Jesus, so tender with the apostle Paul who'd been killing killing the believers. 
It's been, it's been rough for you, hasn't it been, Paul? It's been hard to kick against the goats. He delights in us. It pleases him to work in our lives. And you're not an exception to that. He delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel. Solomon wasn't made king because of how awesome he was. God made him king because it pleased the Lord to bless him in that way. But then he also, she also says that God, that she, in her mind, that God made him king to bless God's people. He says, because the Lord loved Israel forever, therefore he made you a king to do judgment and to do justice. God delights in blessing me, and he wants to bless me more than I want to be blessed. But that truth extends to those around me as well. God also made Solomon king because the gifts that he gave to Solomon would be a huge blessing to the other people God loved, the entire nation of Israel. And so this leads us to a third tip to avoid backsliding. Never assume that God is using you because he's pleased with how you're living. Never assume that, well, God's using me, so he must be happy with what I'm doing. Very often when they do these post-interviews with people like Jim Baker, uh, other individuals who fell. They didn't fall and walk away from the faith, but fell really hard, and then, you know, we're trying to get their act back together again later on. And that you do these interviews with them, and they, they explain, they, they talk in language that sometimes horrifies us. Very often, a compromised leader will see that God is still using them, and then assume God's okay with their compromises. Well, well, God must be okay with this affair. God must be okay with the fact that I don't have a devotion time anymore. Because, I mean, clearly he's blessing me. I mean, look at how many people are getting saved or how lives are growing and how good things are happening in the church. God wouldn't use me if my behavior upset him, right? But that is an inappropriate view of ministry or being used by God when we look at the Scripture. God doesn't deal immediately with secret sin or compromises for for two reasons. First off, he's giving us time to repent. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 21, he mentions that wicked woman Jezebel, right? uh, It's like you kind of ask yourself the question because this woman who's born hundreds of years after the, the real Jezebel lived, and like, why did mom name you Jezebel or dad name you Jezebel? Like, that's a, not a good name biblically. So if your name's Jezebel, it's great. You're good. <laughs> but he says, I have a few things against you. He's talking to the church of Thyatira because you suffer. You permit that woman Jezebel, which calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things offered unto idols. This is not a, a good lady. And look at what the Lord says, and I gave her space to repent of her fornication. Like you think, God, why don't you just get her out of there? Well, because I love her, and I, wanna, I want her to change. I want her to stop. I want her to repent. So God doesn't deal with secret sin or compromise in our life, first off, because He's giving us time to repent. He's calling us to repentance. And then secondly, God doesn't deal with it immediately because he doesn't want to remove the blessings from the rest of his people. He loves them enough to put up with someone's shenanigans until he absolutely must discipline them. Therefore, if I want to know if God is pleased with me, I can't look and see, well, is God using me? No. I just led somebody to Christ at work. I must be in God's will. No. No. Some of the people who have had 
some of the most profound things to say to me in my life that helped me as a Christian are not even walking with the Lord right now. Those are not evidence that God is pleased. If I want to know if God's pleased with me, I need to look at my thoughts and my actions and see how they line up with God's Word. Do you see a theme here? Like that's always going to be the place we need to go to, not these other things. Well, verse 10, it says, And she gave the king 120 talents of gold and of spices, a very great store, and precious stones. There came no more such abundance of spices as these which the queen of Sheba gave to Solomon. The queen may have been curious about Solomon's fame and wanted to grill him, but I doubt a delegation including the queen would have been approved if it weren't in the hopes of securing something far more important than her own curiosities. And so that was trade. This is a gift in the same way an organization gives free samples. See how good our product is. If you like it, we can talk about how you get more of it. It's no different here. Hey, here's a gift. These are the type of perfumes we have. This is the gold we have access to. You know, these are the things. What was the third thing? The precious gems we have access to. If you like it, there's more of it. It mentions here that there came no more such abundance. It's a bad translation. Second Chronicles 9.9 says Solomon had never seen spices of this quality. So it was this that enticed Solomon to talk about a trade deal with her. So it mentions she gives the gift, and Solomon's impressed. He's like, this stuff smells good. Where do I sign up? Now, before we get to his response to her trade deal proposal, the writer mentions Solomon's trade assets, verses 11 and 12. And the navy also of Hiram that brought gold from Ophir, brought in from Ophir great plenty of almug trees and precious stones. And the king made of the almug trees pillars for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, harps also and psalteries for singers. There came no such almug trees, nor were seen unto this day. No one really knows what kind of trees these are because we don't know where he got them from. But they were valued enough to mention them, so they must have been prestigious in some way. Solomon, it mentions that he made these pillars. The word pillars here means raised platforms or railings or steps. We don't know where he put these in the temple or in his palace. No explanation is given to what purpose they served, so we can't know their significance in that way, but apparently they had some type of wow factor to them. Like, ooh, that's nice wood. And then it mentions that it was used as wood also for special stringed instruments, the psalteries for singing. Why is the writer pointing out Solomon's other commercial pursuits after explaining how Solomon had ever seen spices like this before? Well, because the writer wants his readers to see that Solomon's pursuits had changed a bit in the last 20 years. For so long, as we're reading through 1 Kings, where's Solomon's focus been? It's all been on the temple all been on God's plan for his life. The whole reason I'm king is to do this, right? I mean, everything that Solomon's focus has been up to this point is build the temple, lead the people. But now we see that Solomon has added a third thing to his list of pursuits, and it's called amass shiny things, which brings us to tip number four, to avoid backsliding. And if there's any tip you listen to tonight, let it be this one. If you want to avoid backsliding, check your heart on a regular basis to see what your goals are. Has the goal changed from enjoying life with your spouse and family to enjoying a certain kind of life with your spouse and family? Because that is a different thing. Has the goal changed from, you know, let's reach as many people for the gospel to let's reach enough people to achieve a certain status in society? Has the goal changed from let's teach God's truth because we're loyal to Him to let's teach God's truth because we're loyal to our way of life? 
They're subtle differences, but they are important differences. And when we don't keep, we don't check our hearts and ask the Lord to search our hearts and to say, Lord, what is my real goal right now? What am I after? Subtly things can change. When we sold our home, our very first home, we really didn't have a whole lot of expectations. We, we had a thousand square foot home. We had four kids at the time. Uh, we knew we wanted to adopt and we needed more space. And so our goal was sell the home and just get something that was able to both accommodate our larger, fa- our larger family that when we first bought the home, we had one kid. And then secondly, to be able to entertain guests. Well, when we started going out on the market and looking, we realized that we could afford a home that was much nicer than we thought we could have originally. And so we started seeing some of these places we're like, this is amazing. Like we could, we could get this home, yet we could qualify for this and it would work in our budget. And we're like, this is really cool. And so one of the first houses we saw was the home we bought now. And the home we, we live in now was wide open. It had this amazing space. It would, it would be perfect for what our goals were. But it was an older home. And the very first time we did it, it didn't appraise correctly and the deal fell through. And I was like, good. I didn't like that one anyway. And so we started putting in deals, offers for all these other homes that were more, they were nicer, they were larger, they were shinier. And those kept falling through too. But by this time, I had my heart set on those things. And so a real estate agent is like, hey, we, we're pretty sure the market's changed a little bit and that the appraisal will work fine for that other home. You guys really like that home. And Bev's like, I, you know, I like that home. Yes, it's an older home, and I know you hate the bathrooms. Um, and I still hate our bathrooms. <laughs> but <laughs> I think we can make it work this time. And I'm like, no way. I am not going back to that dirt hole. And, and I remember I was so resistant to this that Bev sat down with me one time, and she's like, hey, do you remember when we prayed about selling our house and do you remember what our goal was? And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I had gotten so sidetracked. And the Lord's like, well, I've, yes, it's difficult because you lost money. I was bitter. I don't like losing money. And I lost money because the appraisal didn't work out, blah, blah, blah. But the Lord was saying, well, I know it's been a challenge for you, but this is exactly everything you asked me for. I didn't change here, you did. And I remember being on my knees in that apartment complex because we were, had to get an apartment because our home sold so fast. And I remember being on my knees going, Lord, I'm so sorry. I've gotten so off from where you are. I will buy the dirt hole. <laughs> and it's not, it's a beautiful home. It accommodates us wonderfully. Has the goal changed? Check your heart. Do you see subtle differences? Because that's how backsliding starts to happen. That's why it's called backsliding and not back running. It's a slow, slippery slide backwards. Well, Solomon deems that the queen's shiny spices are worthy of being pursued. So he makes a deal, verse 13. And King Solomon gave unto the queen of Sheba all her desire, whatsoever she asked, beside that which Solomon gave her of his royal bounty. So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. The phrase, all her desire, literally could, could be translated, all her business. So they make a deal. 
Now, he had given his own samples. That's what the royal bounty is. It was the, the table that he sat at, the food supplies Israel has. Israel's still, one of the, this day, one of the largest exporters of certain food products in the world, which, again, is fascinating. It's a little tiny strip of a land, but they're one of the largest exporters of grain and some other things uh, in the world these days. There are those who suggest that she asked Solomon for a child when it says all her desire, and then they actually had a romantic relationship together. While Solomon had woman issues later in his reign, there is nothing in the Bible to suggest they had a relationship. The language here is all about trade, nothing romantic at all. Now, the queen was in awe of Solomon's wealth. That's why she wanted the trade deal. Well, just how wealthy was Solomon? How much was Solomon pursuing the amassing of shiny things? Well, verse 14 through the end of the chapter tells us. Verse 14 and 15 tells us his yearly income. Now, the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 603 score and six talents of gold. Yes, that's 666. I don't know if there's any significance to that. That's the number of man, the Bible tells us. So it's possible that that's just the Lord's way of saying this is all flesh. I don't think numbers are spooky. I, I worked in the restaurant industry for years. And anytime a customer, the bill came up 666, they're like, oh, add a fry. <laughs> Any, I don't care. Just put a brownie on there, anything. I, just, I don't want to have to pay that. Like, like all of a sudden, I don't know. Anyway. That being said, I'm not going to brandish my 666 receipt either. Be like, hey, look at my receipt. <clears throat> but while the, the number's nothing to be afraid of, it's not mystical or magical, I, I do think it is an interesting number considering that we're talking about Solomon kind of getting sidetracked, being more spiritual, uh, less spiritual and more carnal, since that is the number of man is what the book of Revelation tells us. But that was his yearly income. It's kind of where maybe you, you say, tell that guy not to pay me. You know, so it's 665, you know, but... Beside that, he had of the merchantmen and of the traffic of the spice merchants and of all the kings of Arabia and of all the governors of the country. So this is in addition to his trade deal that he just made. Um, this was money that he had just been already taking in. 666 talents is around 25,000 pounds of gold. Uh, that would be almost a half a million dollars at current rates. Um, the Bible doesn't tell us where this revenue came from. Uh, taxes are mentioned later. So it's possible that this is simply from his, his merchant exploits in this land of Ophir. It's one of the reasons there are lots of legends about Solomon's mines in Ophir. We don't know really where it came from, except that it's in addition to the trade deals and the treaty agreements that Solomon had with other nations. It also mentions here it's in addition to the governors of the country. 1 Kings 4.7 explained to us that these were the 12 guys in charge of the 12 financial districts in Israel that were responsible for supplying a month of Solomon's provisions for the palace for the running of the government. So that was, in essence, Solomon's taxes. So all this was in addition to the taxes. Solomon it was a ridiculously wealthy man. And verse 16 shows us he displayed it openly. It says, and King Solomon made 200 targets of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went to one target. He also made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three pounds of gold went to one shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. So the targets are the large, the big body size, rectangular shields. They would shield your entire body. The exact weight of a shekel changed a few times throughout Israel's history, so it's not possible to know for sure how much gold went into making these things. I can tell you it was a lot, and that's enough to know. I don't sit around my house going, hey, honey, can you know, uh, we make a gold statue of something? I don't have that kind of wealth, but uh, Solomon did. 
He just made these shields. These are ceremonial garb that the, the soldiers working in the palace would wear. They wouldn't be of any use to them. Gold is soft and it would be useless in battle, so these are simply for ceremonial use. The shields are the smaller round shields that you saw men fight with, uh, and he put them in the house of the forest, which means uh, the armory that was attached to his palace. That's where they were, and they'd bring them out as a symbol of Solomon's wealth and prosperity. But that wasn't it. He had a throne, and boy, did this guy have a throne. Verse 18, moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory, and he overlaid it with the best gold. Well, let's go on. Verse 19, the throne had six steps, and the top of the throne was round behind. And there were stays on either side of the place of the seat, and two lions stood beside the stays. And then 12 lions stood there on the one side and on the other upon the six steps. There was not the like made in any kingdom. So the throne is made all of ivory, which if you're wondering, is this the ivory that I should be thinking of? Yes. You know, this is like elephant tusk material. And there's enough of it that he builds not just a chair, but an entire platform, a raised platform on which the chair sat. And he overlaid this ivory with, it says, the best gold. It means refined gold. Because gold is such a soft metal, it is almost always mixed with other metals to provide sturdiness. Solomon had all the impurities removed from his throne. I hope he didn't pound it too often because it probably got dented if that's the case, if it's just pure gold. It mentions that it was rounded behind, so it had a, a nice gold little like pillow in the back he could rest his head on and you know, provide curvature for his neck. He spared no expense for his comfort. Had ar- stays means the armrests were there, and then he had these two massive lions made of gold sitting on each side of him, and then going down the steps, six steps, he had six lions on this side and six lions on that side. Some suggest the 12 lions symbolized his rule over the 12 tribes. That'd be an impressive reminder if you're coming to visit the king. You know, I don't know, like if he named them each, like, hey, there's, you know, Manasseh and there's Judah. You walk up and you look over and you're like, I'm the elder from the tribe of, you know, whatever. You look over and be like, yeah, he's got a little lion, you know, reminding me that he's in charge. Whatever Solomon's reason, it was impressive, an impressive sight. He also spared no expense displaying his wealth and his leisure activities. Verse 21, it says, And all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest were of pure gold. None were of silver. In fact, it mentions it was nothing accounted of in the days of Solomon. All the gear, all the equipment used for anything. I mean, you brought out you know, plates. There were no paper plates in Solomon's dinner table. And they were not you know, bringing out the china. It was like gold stuff. No silver either. Silver had zero value in Israel at this time. That's how wealthy the nation was. That's how prosperous they were. And then Solomon was so wealthy, all this came from the fact is that he didn't just have one navy doing business in faraway lands. He had two. Verse 22, for the king had at sea a navy of Tharshish with the navy of Hiram, alongside the navy of Hiram. And once in three years came the navy of Tharshish, bringing gold and silver, ivory and apes and peacocks. Tharshish is a place we're not entirely sure. Most people believe that this, was, this region of Tharshish was an area in Spain, uh, but some even suggest it meant things beyond Spain. Because of the distance to get to Spain or beyond, ships of Tarshish were massive vessels able to survive long merchant ventures, and these were three-year ventures. So these ships, it's not that they, he sent ships to Tarshish, but they were ships 
constructed in Tarshish and then he brought over to be used probably in his merchant exploits in the Indian Ocean, so southeast of Israel. And these ships brought even more exotic supplies into Israel, not just gold and silver and ivory, but it also mentions apes and peacocks. The King James writers did their best. This is not apes and peacocks. This is small monkeys and baboons. The word apes here just means a primate with a tail, and you understand the difference between an ape and a monkey if you've seen Veggie Tales, right? Right? If it doesn't have a tail, it's not a monkey. If it doesn't have a tail, it's not a monkey. It's an ape. So, small monkeys here. So, he liked having small monkeys around. The baboons, he liked having little baboons around. And this successful pursuit of wealth made Solomon's fame only grow more. Look at verse 23. It says, so King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom, and all the earth sought to Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. And they brought every man his present, vessels of silver, vessels of gold, garments, armor, spices, horses, and mules, a rate year by year. Verse 23 is not claiming that Solomon was the wealthiest king of his time. When it says that he exceeded all the kings, it means he became great or exalted among the kings. And it tells us it wasn't just for his riches, it was because of his wisdom. So the idea here is that it's not claiming Solomon was the wealthiest king of his time, but that his combination of wealth and wisdom separated him from all the other kings on the earth at that time. And that fame resulted in a flow of other dignitaries who were seeking to set up trade deals with Israel. For it mentions all the earth sought to Solomon to hear his wisdom that God had put in his heart. But it also says in verse 25, they brought their goods. They brought his presents, vessels of silver, of gold, garments, armor, spices, horses, mules. Interesting, Israel's not supposed to have mules. They're not supposed to have a ton of horses either, but we'll get to that in a second. But a rate year by year explains to us they set up these trade deals where they would give a certain amount of goods each year, and Solomon would give them a certain amount of goods. I think it's important, though, to recognize that the Scripture, the writer here, makes it clear where Solomon's wisdom came from. It says, to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. Which brings us to tip number five, to avoid backsliding. Check your heart regularly to see if you're beginning to believe your own press. I don't know if Solomon started to think his wisdom came from himself, but too many have made that mistake over the centuries where they begin to think, I'm pretty good at this, and we forget how we got to that place. When God gives me good success, I can slip into the mindset that my success is due to my natural giftings or things I've become good at rather than His supernatural favor. And when I start to think, this is who I am, rather than this is who God made me, I can begin to lean on my own understanding and stop acknowledging my need for the Lord in all that I do. Solomon is an example of someone who failed this way. One of the craziest parts of Scripture is his whole encounter with Delilah. Like the first day she's messing with my hair or she's messing with me in some way about how to sap my strength, I'd be like, see you, lady. I'm going to find me a nice Israeli girl. But he's playing around because he's convinced it's not the Lord. He's convinced it's just who he is. And so the Bible tells us that when she finally cut his hair and she said to him, it's Judges 16 uh, verse 20, And she said, the Philistines be upon you, Samson. 
It says that he awoke out of his sleep and he said, the man's got to know he's got no hair. Like if somebody cut all my hair in the middle of the night, I wouldn't wake up and not notice. But he woke up out of his sleep and he said, I will go out as at other times before and shake myself. It doesn't say he didn't know his hair was cut. It says, and he did not know that the Lord was departed from him. Solomon had a second obsession besides amassing wealth and was amassing some other shiny things. Verse 26, Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. Why did he need to amass a collection of chariots and horsemen? Well, as we saw in chapter 9, Solomon disobeyed the Lord by amassing horses. So he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he bestowed in the cities for chariots and with the king at Jerusalem. Remember when I suggested that it wasn't coincidence that Solomon's relationship with Pharaoh was mentioned beside his purchase of horses? Well, we're going to get confirmation in a minute that it's not a coincidence that he got him from Egypt. Verse 27, and the king made silver to be in Jerusalem as stones, and cedars he made to be as sycamore trees that are in the vale for abundance. And Solomon had horses brought out of Egypt and linen yarn. The king's merchants received the linen yarn at a price. In other words, it was a trade deal. And a chariot came up and went out of Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150, trade deal. And so for all the kings of the Hittites and for the kings of Syria, did he bring them out by their means. He didn't only make these deals with Egypt, but then he made trade deals with the Hittites and with Syria to get more horses and more chariots. We read it last week in Deuteronomy 17, verses 16 and 17, but we'll read it again. God gave clear instructions to the king, verse 16 of Deuteronomy 17. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should, buy, he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord has said unto you, you shall not henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that's next week, that his heart turn not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. Which brings us to tip number six to avoid backsliding. Ask yourself if you're making excuses or justifications for disobeying God's commands. The Bible never gives us Solomon's reasons for violating these clear commands for Israel's kings in Deuteronomy 17. And we already established that Solomon knew his Bible pretty well. Whatever Solomon's reason was, it was a bad one. It was a bad one. And so, we are now set up for chapter 11 where Solomon is not just backsliding, but he's full-blown away from the Lord. Solomon had a, was a wonderfully gifted man with a powerful anointing from God, but he had a big character flaw, one that he never reigned in. Solomon craved things that God told him to stay away from, and eventually it took his heart away from the Lord. I have often had serious conversations, usually with men, where I've seen that craving in their eyes, in their heart, and I warn them. I say, you crave things that God hates and God tells you to stay away from. You need to rein that in, you need to deal with that, because if you don't, it will bite you. You know, sometimes backsliding is obvious. You, you know you haven't been reading your Bible, you've not been praying, you've not been in fellowship, you're not right with the Lord. But most of the time, it's not obvious. Most of the time, it's more subtle. 
Like Solomon, we decide to make compromises or justify our disobedience, and as a result, our hearts begin to fall in love with other things than the Lord. And in Matthew 6, we read in our Scripture reading that nobody can love two masters. You can't serve two masters because you'll love one and hate the other. You'll be loyal to one, and the other one will be a burden. You'll despise it. And when my heart begins to love other things in competition with Jesus, loving Jesus will always be the thing that becomes the burden. He will become something I know I should do, but it's not something I want to do. And if I persist in that backsliding, I can eventually come to a place where I just don't care anymore. Now, hopefully the fact that you're here tonight means you're not there. (laughs) But if loving Jesus has become more like a duty lately, then maybe it's time to heed the lessons that the writer of 1 Kings has given to us. So I ask you tonight, are you looking at your success or your prosperity or your good circumstances, whether it's in business or personal finance or even ministry? Are you looking at those as evidence that God is pleased with you? Have your goals become different than they used to be? Are you thinking more highly of yourself than you used to? Or have you been making excuses or justifying compromise or disobedience? Because if the answer to any of those things is yes, well, then tonight's a good night to change that. And then to just turn your heart back to him and say, Lord, I don't, I don't want you to be a burden to me. I love you. And so I want to lay these things down. I want to get back to my first love. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, I think of how many times you've called me back to that same place that you did the church at Ephesus, you said, remember, repent, and redo. So Lord, tonight, you know, if there's anyone whose heart you've, you've kind of touched and you said, daughter, son, this is, this is where you're at right now. This thing, you've been comforting yourself with how life is good or, or circumstances are good or you're prospering or, or the goals have changed. Whatever it might be, Lord, that that you've been putting your finger on tonight, if there's anyone here tonight that, that that's going on, that I pray as they are responding to you, Lord, and they're repenting, they're remembering, they're repenting and committing to redo the first works. Lord, I pray that you'd receive that confession, you'd receive that repentance, that you'd forgive and that you'd cleanse and that you'd begin to restore that love. Lord, we, none of us, Lord, want to leave here tonight backsliding or compromised or or our hearts far from you, we certainly don't want to leave with sensing you're a burden. So we give you ourselves tonight, Lord, all of us. We want to love you more and pursue you. In Jesus' name, amen.